so that's how I think about it. And so it's this mix of beautiful with ugly or beautiful with disgust. Hello, Prit friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak with printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. Products like Armheim 1618, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill near the city of Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs. And our friend and guest of early episode number four, Miles Calvert, evangelizes its use yearly, encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's new impressions contest, where they produce work in every medium. So if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever inky ideas you can throw at it, then head on over to speedballart.com to find out where you can pick up the start of your next edition. My guest this week is Tanya Torgerson, visiting assistant professor at the School of Art, Architecture, and Design at Indiana University. This one gets a bit deep, print friends. Tanya's work looks at the failures of the human body, which means we talk about death, illness, and the inevitability of it all. And we had a great time doing it. Tanya tells us about how an unexpected health crisis when she was 19 put her on a path to examine her own relationship with death and how she continues to do so through her large-scale, beautiful, ephemeral screen prints. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to meet this maker, Tanya Torgerson. Hi, Tanya. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm good. Thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So, I, I think I first was introduced to your work maybe through an SGCI installation or something like that. Like, I recall seeing it in person, which is great because that is unusual in our day and age that the first time we get to interact <laughs> with an artist's art uh, is in person. And then I just sort of saw your work keep popping up around the, the web, um, seeing it, you know, in some juried exhibitions, um, screen print biennial, of course, all of that kind of stuff. And then I got to go and talk to your class at one point, which was really delightful as well. And I got just really intrigued. I got a little bee in my bonnet thinking that (laughs) I would love to, you know, set you on the mic, put you under the microscope and make you talk to me about your art. So thanks for agreeing. That's great. That's great. I'm so glad you got to see my work in person because I don't know, like when I, I love having a digital presence. It's really important, but I don't think anything compares to seeing work in person. Um, Especially I like to work life-size. So like having that like life-size interaction with work is really important and you just don't get that from digital. So I'm so happy you got to see it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, And yeah, I really am. At one point in this talk, I'd love to dive into kind of that like working life size and, you know, the the why and the how of all of that. But before we get there, let's let you introduce yourself uh, by answering the now classic Hello Print Friend questions, <laughs> <laughs> who you are, where you are, and what you do. Okay. My name is Tanya Torgerson. I'm a visiting assistant professor at Bloomington, Indiana. So I'm at the same place as Alexander Landerman, who I know you've talked to. Yes. Um, and I am an artist. My work is primarily uh, drawing-based, and I'm also a printmaker, and my focus in printmaking tends to be screen print, but not always. So where did you grow up, and what role did art play in that part of your life? Yeah, I grew up in northern Minnesota in a very remote area. Um, my parents were kind of hippies. They were a bit back to the landers. Um, so where I grew up was very remote art played a small role in there. I think the biggest role that art played in my upbringing was my mom's had many positions, but she was a a sign painter when I was an early child. So I got to hang out a lot in her sign painting studio. 
and watch her do lettering by hand, pinstriping, all of those kind of amazing things. And so I think, you know, her creative pursuit started my creative pursuit. Yeah. And sign painting is incredible. (laughs) Yeah. It's really that kind of art, that invisible art. And um, in this way, it's gone by the wayside, of course, because now people can, you know, just go to Kinko's and get something blown up. But yeah, it's it's really beautiful. I don't know if you've ever seen the the documentary about sign painting. This maybe, I haven't. I think maybe it's called One Shot because that's what you know, like the yeah, classics, that's One Shot's the paint. Yeah, the paint. Totally. Yeah. Um, it's really really good. And uh, there's a there's a line in it, you know, where they're talking about these sign painters who still work that I think about all the time mm-hmm. um, because they it's it's an acronym that they say to each other that I'm not going to have the brain power to to pull out, but it stands for it's only a fucking sign. <laughs> And Tim and I will sometimes say that to each other if we're getting, like, really worked up about a creative undertaking. It's just like, it's only a fucking sign. You know, like, just, like, know what you're doing. So that is so cool. I've I've been kind of fascinated with Sign Painter since I saw the documentary and the the fact that it's, it's this incredibly high-skilled um, artistic form that is a little bit invisible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. I think, unfortunately, like a lot of it has gone, you know, is kind of a bygone era. It's gone by the wayside as digital printing became, you know, an easier way for a lot of people to make signs, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But I remember my mom, you know, painting billboards when I was a kid, which was pretty amazing. And uh, like pinstriping semi trucks, uh, those types of things. And she still does some of that occasionally. It's really with some of her like old clients who Mm. come to her for years. But, you know, she only does a couple signs a year now where it used to be, you know, she always had a sign in the works, at least one, if not more. So, yeah. And so you were in a very rural area Mm -hmm. and you had, I love that the back to the land hippies, which is so funny. I actually have spoken with several printmakers who describe their foundational years that way. And I think, you know, our generation, you know, the kind of um, the 80s babies, Mm -hmm. you know, are the babies of the 60s kids, you know? And and so I, I do think that there is that that interesting sort of stepping out of the system and then the stepping back into the system that the kids were in a way you know c- kind of forced to do it's um you know it's it's a lot harder for us to make a life and survive uh, than it was for our parents um, in a lot of ways, sort of financially. And so it's funny how I talk to a lot of professors because, you know, a lot of printmakers are professors mm-hmm. and how a lot of their parents, though, were like, nope, we're growing our own food. We're going off grid. And then they end up, you know, back in the university system for their kids. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It is really interesting. And I know my parents always kind of protest when I call them back to the landers, uh-huh. though it was truly my father's like, goal in moving there. My mom was from the region, so I think she feels less uh, mission-based than he did. But they also had day jobs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they had kind of these two feet. Like, they had cattle. We raised cattle. We had our own farm. Um, You know, we had a giant garden. We, you know, weren't on a a water system. We did have electricity, but some Mm -hmm. of our neighbors didn't, Um, you know, like, but we burned wood for fuel. So we did a lot of these very traditional back to the land things. Uh, At the same time, like my father worked in academia. Mm -hmm. So I think that was partially, you know, some of the interest in going back into academia. He worked at a vocational school, so very, very different, you know, than a university, but had a similar kind of, you know, mm. interest in working in academia. Yeah. And so you had this influence of obviously seeing your mother as a maker and seeing it in this really practical, uh, almost career-driven way of, of, of making these very communicative objects that sign paintings are. And then for you, did you imitate that as a young human in the world? Were you drawing a lot? Was that just kind of a part of your life? Or was that mom's thing? Uh, Drawing was definitely a part of my life, something I always did. It wasn't my mom's thing. It's interesting. She didn't draw a lot. So her Mm. work was very, she did do some images, but her work was almost entirely like lettering and line work. Um, And now I can look back and see my love of line work through her work. Mm -hmm. I don't think I made that connection for the longest time. 
you know, I can't, I still can't imagine the precision of her hand in order to yeah. do the work that she did. It's something I could never do. Um, but I, I drew and I was very creative um, as a child and went to, you know, a very, very rural high school. And by the time I was a junior, not even a junior, a sophomore at that high school, I had done all of their art <laughs> programming. I mean, the art yeah. teacher, I hate to like, you know, poo-poo rural art education, but mine was very limited. My art teacher was the hockey coach. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, and that <laughs> was his that primary things function. can't be true, but like, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's that, I feel like, especially the, yeah, the rural Minnesota, that's, that is such a vibe, Tanya. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a very vibe. You know, that's why he was mostly at the school was to be the hockey coach yeah. and not necessarily to be the art teacher, though he wasn't a terrible art teacher. It was just, you know, we had very limited art resources. Um, and so I ended up when I was 16, moving to Minneapolis to go to the Perfect Center for Arts Education. Mm. Um, and that's, I feel like when I started to really think about art a lot more seriously. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was that transition like? So from a uh, little town hockey to coach, art teacher, raising cattle to like <laughs> really a major metropolitan area. Yeah. I was extremely ready for it. Okay. Uh, it was, I was very interested. You know, I found out about it because my parents like gave me a newspaper clipping from a Minneapolis paper about the school. And I thought, I think they thought it was just something I'd be interested in. Like, oh, that's interesting. And not I'm going there now, mm. <laughs> which was, you know, how I went to. And it was, it's a very interesting high school. It's a public high school. It's meant to serve a lot of, you know, communities around all of Minnesota, but especially especially like rural Minnesota and bring them down into kind of like a quasi public school, quasi boarding school for the arts. And it's not just visual art. It's also dance and theater and writing and photography. Um, and so there's all sorts of things happening there, which was amazing. That sounds I, incredible. I was just thinking like if, if someone had been able to pull, you know, uh, 16, 14, 16 year old Miranda, out of high school and do that, I think it would have blown my mind. Like I would have been so thrilled. Yeah. 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 It absolutely blew my mind and kind of, I think changed everything for me. I don't know what would have happened had I not gone to that school, but I really do think of that school as my starting path. It's where I learned to screen print. Mm. Um, and it was huge for me. And so we do academics in the morning and then your afternoon would be entirely devoted to your creative path, which, again, could be all of these different fields. And it was an amazing school. It was so good. It was a it was a very small school uh, compared to where I had come from, which is kind of funny because yeah. I came from a very rural area, but uh, in a rural area that kind of like took all I had a very small elementary school, but then everybody got funneled into uh, junior high and high school, like all the rural areas got funneled into like the closest town, which was Detroit Lakes for me. Mm. And so my high school it, in northern Minnesota, I think had 1500 students, which isn't huge, but was, you know, very big where my high school, like Perpich, I believe had 200 students. Wow. So, you know, that was a big shift. Um, I was really ready for it. I think the hardest thing for me was having a lot of rules and regulations growing up in a very rural area with, you know, hippie parents. I didn't really have a lot of rules. I never had a curfew, <laughs> uh -huh. you know, all of those things. And because it's a, you know, a boarding school, this public boarding school kind of situation, there is a lot of rules. There's because they're dealing with minors and everything. And that was a challenge for me. Uh, but I was very ready to leave home. My parents weren't ready for me to leave. Yeah. Uh, but I think they're happy I did in the end. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like an incredible experience. And, and like you say, really puts you on the path. I mean, getting introduced to screen printing at that age, most everyone I talk to on the podcast, when I say, when did you first find printmaking? It's lino cutters, potato prints, because, you know, yeah. that's, you don't, you don't need really any facilities to do that. And so that's what you get in a public high school if you get it at all. But the fact that you got to even you know, learn and make in that way is, is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I often think about, I think about how 
early I learned how to screen print a lot. And a lot of people ask me questions about my style and some of my interests. And it came, it grew so organically out of me screen printing that I think they like informed each other. And it's hard for me to separate out what if I do certain things because for the aesthetics or if I do it because it's screen printing. Like to me, when I make art, I always think about it as if it was a screen print, even Uh. if it's often not a screen print. That's just the way my brain has come to think about making art. Oh, right. So because, yeah, you had this like squishy teenage brain, right, that's still forming its pathways. Mm -hmm. And screen printing got in there early and got to implant itself permanently. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So at that point, I mean, were you instantly sort of drawn to screen printing and kind of felt like you were going to make a life of it um, and went and studied it in grad school? Or how did that how did it sort of follow with you, I guess? Yeah. I mean, I think the funniest thing is, is I was very not interested in learning how to screen print. Like, <laughs> I think a lot of, you know, young artists, I was like multiples you until the second <laughs> I did it and yeah. I fell in love with it instantly. And so screen printing, yeah, has always been a love for me. And then I took kind of, you know, a little bit of a wandering path towards graduate school. It's not, I didn't end up there right away. Uh, One of the things I think that was, you know, a challenging part about going to this school that sometimes me and my friends joke who went there, it was kind of like fame. Do you know what I mean? That Uh movie and like its mentality. But it was to go to an art conservatory was kind of the path that people were were kind of expected to take after going there. And I did go to an art conservatory, but only for one semester. And I just realized it was not a good fit for me. Um, So I dropped out of my first college, um, but was making, you know, and I never got to screen print when I was in that first college because it was, you know, screen printing something you do in upper level. You never get to do it in intro. But I was very, I'm from, I'm also like have a lot of a punk rock background. And so, you know, from an early age, I was the person, you know, making band t-shirts and making band posters and I think that was another one of the reasons I was really drawn to screen printing particularly was the ability to do it without a lot of resources. Yeah I was gonna say I mean punk rock and screen print have a long and happy marriage. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that was for a long time after high school, how I, I'd say a couple of years, like that was my screen printing kind of creative path. And then I went to the University of Minnesota. And when I started there, I said I wanted to pursue anything but art. <laughs> I think I just needed to see if that was truly my path or not. And so I spent my first couple of years as an undergrad uh, trying to do everything else and not loving it as much as I loved art. And so then I ended up, you know, doing art as my degree. And when I knew I kind of knew that at that point. At the point that I chose to get my BFA in undergrad, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, Mm. or at least that was my hope. Um, So that was kind of when I picked that path. But I also kind of did something similar after my undergrad, which is after my undergrad, I took three years off Mm. and kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could make art and pursue an art career outside of school. So I did that for three years, really gained a much better sense of myself and who I was as an as an artist, and then chose to go to grad school kind of after those three years of getting to better know myself and what I wanted to make and how I made outside of academia. I think that's super smart and so important for people to hear because I am also a wandering student, you know, um, went to three different colleges in my undergrad and took a year off in between my two years of grad school and just you know, always was kind of testing the waters as I went forward, you know, like, is this right? Mm -hmm. Is this right? Does this feel right? Maybe I need to stop and find out. And that's fine. And I think that a lot of times there's a lot of pressure on kids these days and that they need to kind of know what they want and go for it and never look back when like, sometimes you just need to wander around a little bit and make some mistakes and make some mistakes and lower pressure, lower stakes situations than academia can be. I mean, that's definitely what I did. And and that you can still find your way to graduate school and find your way to a teaching position um, and live in that world without ever having, without having it needed to feel like very much you from go. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think as a, as a young student, as a high schooler, I really thought I had to pick my path in life with my college. Uh, 
you know, it felt a lot of pressure. It felt like I was making that big decision. And I made the wrong decision for me, ultimately. Mm -hmm. You know, I picked the wrong school. I got there. It was not for me. And that was okay. Like, I think there's this idea for a lot of people that you have to, you know, make that decision and then stick to that decision. Mm -hmm. And you can't change your mind. Uh, I think undergrad especially is is an amazing time to change your mind about your career path. That's so rare that you're going to know exactly at 18 what you want to do. And it's okay to figure that out later in life. Um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it is a bonkers prospect that we expect 18 year olds (laughs) to pick and know what they want to do with their lives. And I was, you know, completely insane at that age and had absolutely no idea uh, what I wanted to do. And yeah. And so I think it's, no, I think it's really good, uh, to hear that. So I always appreciate hearing those stories, um, of taking the winding road, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You see, you see more things along the way. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So I want to talk specifically about your work and, you know, going through your website and other interviews with you and, you know, what I could find kind of researching for this, you know, you see, uh, names of series or names of pieces come up and they're, you know, Memento Mori and Vanitas and Flesh and Bone and Decay. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and so there's a theme yes. um, uh, that, you know, which seems to be, uh, you know, very much um, Memento Mori. And, but I'm sure that there is a story behind that. And why are you drawn to imagery and how did you find yourself working in it so consistently? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I'm absolutely, I often describe my work as I'm interested in the failure of the body mm. and when the body stops working the way we expect it to. I don't think it's necessarily the way it should work, just the way we expect the body to work. Mm. Um, and I think like most people who are interested in a specific theme, have a personal connection to it. My personal connection is when I was in college, I had a health crisis that made me feel my mortality Mm. in a very real way. And then I think the work has grown from that. And so for a long time, I looked specifically at illness and how illness shaped identity. And that was an important topic for me. But that topic has grown to mortality more in general, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think mortality is something we all need to face. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's an amazing, and and illness is a part of that. There's this amazing uh, Susan Sontag quote that I'm going to terribly paraphrase, but she talked, and it's an illness of metaphor, which is a little ironic because she talks about in that you know, writing kind of against the use of metaphor. But in the uh, beginning part, she uses a great metaphor and she talks about the kingdom of the ill and the kingdom of this well. Mm. And that, you know, we all have dual citizenship in both kingdoms. And we really only want to identify as part of the kingdom of the well. But at some point, we all need to see ourselves as part of the kingdom of the sick. And I think that's what I'm interested in doing in my work is having people connect to that other kingdom Mm -hmm. and kind of see themselves and identify themselves as someone who will at some point be unwell. Uh, That's something we all have to go through. It's something that is really difficult to look at. But I think the more we can identify with that kingdom, you know, the easier it is to be a part of it. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of one of the most mind-blowing classes I took in my undergrad. I did my undergraduate in philosophy, and I took a philosophy of disability course. Oh, wow. And it was the first time, you know, someone introduced me to the phrase, like, currently abled. Mm-hmm. You know, and this idea that it's not just this us and them kingdoms, as you say, but it's actually, it's all on a timeline. Yeah. Um, and And even, you know, for people who pass away in like sudden events, you know, there still is even a moment of time in that in which the body is breaking down yeah. that eventually leads, you know, to our death. And so it's, um, it is, it's something that I think about a lot too, when I am sick and even with just a flu or something and how my whole universe changes and my relationship to myself and my relationship to my energy levels and my relationship to what I want to accomplish and my goals, it can be kind of, uh, destabilizing, um, you know, even when you're just down for a weekend. So I think about this kind of thing a lot myself, actually. Um, and it's completely 
as you say, something that we don't dialogue around a lot, and and particularly around death and what leads up to death. And um, yeah, it's all it's all really fascinating, uh, fascinating work. And I'm curious, you know, you also go about it, you know, with these really beautiful images too. Okay. You know, you're dealing with this very hard work, but really beautifully. And I'm wondering, was that a really conscious decision or was that something that your work kind of led you to that form? That's a good question. I think a little bit of both. Mm. So I think beauty has often been an important part of my work, but I don't think I always knew why or how to articulate it and how to use beauty the way that I intended to within my work. Um, so I think early on, I saw beauty as a way to sugarcoat like a hard truth. Mm-hmm. And I've read the philosopher, the person who really changed my mind on how I thought about beauty and how I thought about using beauty within my work is the philosopher Caroline Korsmeyer. And she's written this beautiful book called uh, Savoring Disgust, Mm. The Fair and Foul of Aesthetics. And in it, she describes terrible beauty. And she describes beauty as a way to look at harsh truths that with harsh truths, with things like death or the decay of the body, that's something we usually want to look away from, that we want to create distance from within ourselves and our understanding of ourselves. And that beauty can be a way to examine it and actually get close to hard truths. Mm. And so that's how I think about it. And so it's this mix of beautiful with ugly or beautiful with disgust. Yeah. And, you know, I'm often not really thinking of like moral disgust, I'm thinking of material disgust. And the decay of our bodies is something that is often, you know, described as material disgusting. It's repulsive. It's something we don't want to examine that we have, you know, an instinctual reaction to pull back from. Yeah, a very like evolutionary reaction to pull back from. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so beauty is a way that allows us to get close to something that we instinctually want to pull away from. And so that's how I've come to think about beauty and how I try to use beauty within my work. I don't know if I'm always successful <laughs> at it, but it is kind of like a like a cornerstone for me or like a touchstone, something I think about and try to focus towards through my use of beauty and aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, a, a, I think, a very long art historical tradition as well. If you look at Memento Mori, which I'm sure you have, or I think uh-huh. maybe even more in Vanitas, you know, they'll often pair the beautiful nude woman with the skeleton. Yeah. And and so it is that that uh, that really poetic and kind of endlessly fascinating polarization of human experiences between young and healthy and everyone's eventual decay. Yeah, it's that contrast, right? It's the contrast from, you know, that super vivacious kind of peak of life with the contrast of death and as a way of exposing that they're not inseparable, right? That they're mm-hmm. they're one and the same, that they're connected and you know, one will inevitably lead to the other. Yeah. Yeah. Like like cherry blossom, all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is something that I, I don't know the answer to this question. (laughs) So (laughs) this is kind of more of of the philosophical sort, but because I wrote uh, a few pages. So I did my degree in 16th century printmaking in in art art history. And of course, this is some wonderful glory days of Memento Mori. And you know, I would see them then and I and I really respond to it always when I see it then or within, you know, work like your own of of that kind of like you said, it's it's the remember death. You know, that's the mm-hmm. it's what it means. And and to remember that, you know, we we have our youth and vitality, we have our health almost always, and I might even go so far as to say always, really through no virtue of our own, through no um you know, we don't like, we don't deserve it. You know, it's just uh-huh. luck. It's just luck. You know, it's, it's luck that, um, we were born with, with one set of gene expressions versus another and, and that's it, you know? Um, and, and so all of this always, like I said, it, 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 it I find it always moving. And I, so I, I love the work, but I almost, I'm always like, well, what's the purpose though? You know, like what's the end goal? So like, I look at that, and I remember that I'm going to die or I remember, you know, that I'm fortunate or I maybe feel empathy for people who are 
not as fortunate as I am. But like, what what happens after that? You know, what do I do with that? Maybe that's what I'm trying to ask you. You know, it's like, <laughs> is what do I do with that? You know, do I just feel really grateful in that moment and then go and make a coffee and forget about it? Like, what <laughs> what 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 are we? Why are we doing this? Why do we keep doing it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it differs for you know a variety of people. Mm. For me working in this subject matter makes me think about and appreciate the preciousness of life more. Okay. So, you know, in understanding its finiteness and knowing that it will eventually end and inevitably end, right? And that could happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It could happen, you know, 50 years from now. It could happen anywhere in between. Uh, but just knowing it will end and that there's a finite amount of time makes me think about and value the time that I have differently. Mm. And I think, you know, maybe that happened to me because I was at such a young age when I first was forced to confront mortality. You know, when you're 19, you feel like you're going to live forever. Mm -hmm. And then when you suddenly realize, oh, no, that's not going to happen. It really did change the way I thought about life. And I thought about my time here. And I think that was something I wanted to continue to think about. I didn't want to forget that. I didn't want to kind of go back to the mentality I had before of thinking I was going to live forever and not really valuing the preciousness of it. Mm -hmm. And then I think maybe to think about like the, 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 the why again is that, is it, and then, and then you go and you live your life differently, right? Like you, um, that actually translates into real change. Um, having actually gone through it in a, in a non-theoretical way, how would you say that change manifested for you? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, it changed who I was entirely. Uh, and I think a lot of my earlier work kind of thought about that shift and, you know, the shift between somebody who saw themselves is only healthy to somebody who saw themselves, you know, in this dual citizenship really changed who I was as a person entirely. Mm-hmm. And I think for a while I tried to resolve that change. I don't think I'm interested in, in the resolution of that mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. I think I've just accepted that it has changed me dramatically in almost every way, if not in every way, that I'm a different person now than I was before that. Um, and I like who I am now. Like I, mm-hmm. in the end, it wasn't a negative experience. I think a lot of times people think about illness or confronting mortality as a purely negative experience. But I think, you know, being able to identify as both somebody who's well and as somebody who's sick has really been a valuable thing for me in the end. Mm, yeah, I I often tell people that I, I'm the queen of getting like esoteric illnesses. Um, <laughs> and one of them in my, my collection um, is I got Bell's palsy, mm. um, which isn't that esoteric, but it is something people sometimes haven't heard of unless they've known someone who've gotten it, which is, you know, a, a paralyzation of the face, uh, one side, sometimes both sides of the face. For me, it was the left side of my face. And for six months, it didn't move. I had quite a severe case of it. Some people get full recovery within three weeks. I couldn't even wear my contact lenses because, you know, you can't blink, mm-hmm. um, you know, for at least six months. And I still have uh, a fair amount of, of residual physical effects from it. But what it introduced to me, which was incredibly precious, was I think I was, this was like maybe seven, it was long, must have been longer than that. Um, anyway, I think I was in my, I was like 26 or 27. And I suddenly had to overnight, because the symptoms come on quite quickly, navigate the world, not as a pretty white lady, mm. which I had only ever known mm-hmm. was that I smile at the cashier at the grocery store and they smile back, you know? Mm-hmm. And with this paralyzation of my face, I looked quite strange. And especially if I was talking, you know, you yeah. could kind of get by if you were just totally still. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, any kind of talking or communicating, it was quite striking and quite shocking. Eating in public, like stuff was just falling out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't couldn't do straws couldn't do any liquids no soups you know anyway it's, it's just it was it was that was and a remarkable experience and a remarkable privilege check that i got to experience and then also luckily did receive a fair amount of healing in it to the point now where rarely people notice sometimes people do um but it it's it is it's rare you know um and and so 
I was just thinking of that when you're talking about illness not necessarily always being negative because it can dramatically change our perspectives and help us understand the privilege that we are walking around this world with that maybe were invisible to us before. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I also, yeah, I completely agree with that. I think there's also like a lot of illnesses that are invisible to most people as well. So there's, you know, we kind of assume that everybody's well, unless we can see, uh, you know, something like very apparent. But I, a lot, a lot of us have an illness or multiple illnesses mm-hmm. that are part of who we are, and may or may not be something that we share with other people. And so I'm really, you know, I think, like you said, I think a lot of people identify with illness in a variety of ways and identify with it a lot more than our culture allows us to discuss. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and that it's almost um, embarrassing or self-indulgent is the way we, I think, at least that, speaking from the eye, I should say. So like one of my esoteric illnesses is histamine intolerance, which means I can't eat certain foods. Mm-hmm. And I never, I have yet to figure out how to explain this to someone in a way that I feel comfortable doing it. Because it comes yeah. up, you know, it comes up. I can't have anything fermented is, is one of the things. Mm-hmm. And so... There's a lot of random fermented foods in the world, like <laughs> yogurt, you know, um, and and I feel awkward every time I have to. I feel the need to justify it, or I feel the need to. Um, I don't know. It's just like it's just it's it, there's not a, a comfortable social space for me to to talk about that, and so I can only imagine for people who have more impactful hidden illnesses that that bar must be so much higher as well. Yeah. And, and like you said, there's also, so there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of shame around illness. Right. And I think a lot of people don't want to be identified solely as their illness, which is something I feel like we do a lot in our culture as well Is we only, ident- you know, once we know an illness somebody has, it's kind of this primary identifier that we use yeah. to think about them and describe them. Uh, and so it's, it's a hard thing to have conversations about, um, you know, like, we're having this conversation. I'm not telling you the illness that I have. Right. And that's, I I do that by choice. Yeah. And that's totally like cool, which I know, you know, it's cool, but I just want to be like, like I, everyone gets to do what they want with their own illness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think that's, you know, that's always been a tension for me, both within my work and within how I describe my work is it, it is a very like strong choice that I've made Mm -hmm. to not identify that because for, for a variety of reasons, but one is I think the illness I have specifically like, isn't the primary focus of the work. Do you know, like the work is about this idea in more general terms. And I don't want it to be like simplified or reduced down to my experience with my illness. Right. Like if I wanted to be introduced as history and histamine intolerant podcaster, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's a, it's a delicate balance, you know, and I think it's a balance that I, I try to strike within my work as well. Like Mm. my work has, you know, doesn't, it's, it has a lot of intentional restraint to it. There's a lot of things that aren't like that are very intentionally not shared with the viewer. Mm. And I think for me, that's a way of kind of reproducing that balance as somebody who lives with an invisible illness and doesn't choose to like fully disclose what that illness is. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's it's a really, really interesting tension, as you say. And I think one that I'm sure a lot of people will identify with uh, upon hearing it, um, because it is we we do shame illness in this society, you know, as if it's people have done something wrong, which yeah. is insanity. So <laughs> um, to kind of circle back a bit to the way, you know, all of this that we were chatting about sort of manifests itself in your work. We talked earlier about how you work in screen print and you work really quite large scale, you know, mm-hmm. life size scale. And you work a lot with the human form, a lot with the female form. And so I guess what about making these large scale works did you feel is is necessary or most effective forms to dive into this language and discussion around illness and death and decay? Yeah, I wanted the work to be have a focus on the body. Ah, And uh so I was very interested, you know, in 
our bodies when they don't work correctly or work the way that we want them to. And so working large scale, I wanted the viewer to have that kind of understanding or ability to see themselves bodily within the work. And for me, making things at a one-to-one scale with the viewer was a way to do that. Uh, So a lot of times I think about these figures as almost stand-ins for the viewer. Mm. I want them to be a bit of a mirror for the viewer, where the viewer can place themselves within the figures and within the circumstances of the figures and think about or see themselves, you know, through those figures. And working in a one-to-one scale was a way for me to connect the work to the body and to the viewer's body more. Yeah, I could definitely see that. If It's not the sort of detached, almost textbook-like you know, this is this is a body, but it's not your body because you're holding it in your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, because you also sort of install the work at times directly on the walls of your exhibition spaces, which for me, I feel like would under um, underline that even further because there's not even almost this sense of detachment of like, this is a work of art in my space. It's yeah, just there. Absolutely. Yeah. So I started making life-size work on paper. They were paintings that look like screen prints. Everybody assumes they're screen prints, (laughs) but they're actually paintings. Again, how my brain works. Uh, And, you know, them living on large sheets of paper was my attempt to have, you know, on white paper, on a gallery wall that's white, was me trying to blend in and try to, you know, have it be as seamless for the viewer as possible. It's not framed. It's not in a box. There's not those kind of levels of separation for the viewer And so that's where that work began. And even on that sheet of paper, I I feel like I struggled with that. And so my my favorite form in making work is putting it directly on the gallery wall for it to have that immediacy, to have kind of those lack of barriers for the viewer, for the viewer to not think about them as objects as much and see them more as, you know, part of the gallery as, as they are part of the gallery in that moment viewing the work. And then one of my favorite parts about that is too, is, you know, my work is about life and death and those pieces have a life and they have a death. So the way that they are put up requires that they are destroyed in the deinstallation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and I kind of love the, like, you know, there's something kind of poetic about that, about making work about life and death and having it have this very short life and then having it be destroyed completely, you know, in its deinstallation. And so you had an exhibition this summer um, Mm -hmm. called Succumb, which is just a wonderful word, wonderful title. (laughs) And in that, you had prints and cut paper and collage and life-size figures, and they were kind of in this fallen Garden of Eden. You made all these tree forms. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that particular imagery. And, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about the, the history of this, a bit, a bit of the history of, of the work that you do, you know, this, this, this memento mori to paint it with a very broad brush. Mm-hmm. Were you thinking about that history when you kind of used the, the Garden of Eden? Or is it just, is that about like the, maybe the dichotomy between like the, it's either perfection or it's fallen? Well, I'm just, mm-hmm. yeah, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, so I have an art history background and art history is something I look at a tremendous amount in my work and inspires my work. And the first piece that I made kind of of that body of work, of those, you know, line work only wheat pasted directly on the wall, the very first one I made was for an exhibition at the Catherine E. Nash Gallery in Minneapolis that was um, called Free Radicals. It was about, you know, printmakers that look back at history within their work. And I was commissioned Mm. to make a piece for that show. And the piece I referenced was Durer's The Fall of Man, uh, you know, which has a few different names. But it's the story, you know, part of that story is that in biting, you know, from the fruit of knowledge, Adam and Eve were also realizing their mortality for the first time. Right. And I was really interested in that idea, this idea of realization and how, you know, how far back that story kind of goes within art history, um, or at least within Western art history. So that was kind of the inspiration for this body of work and continues to be part of that inspiration. And so, you know, I'm interested in, you know, that piece that from Succumb is kind of this compressed narrative in a, in a way, and it has these motifs. So it has, you know, the fruit being picked up, the fruit being consumed, and then these bodies completely decaying. 
and kind of falling back into the earth. And, you know, it's stemming from kind of that same story a little bit. It's about realizing mortality and having these kind of different uh, stages of understanding or comprehension of mortality, almost Mm. these different stages of, I don't want to call it grief, but kind of similar to grief. Maybe there are some in there that are grief, but these different, you know, ideas of how they're kind of grappling with their mortality. And I wanted to do it in this kind of fallen Garden of Eden stage. I like, again, the contrast of that, the contrast of, you know, what we think of the Garden of Eden versus this kind of like lifeless forest that I created Mm -hmm. that has a lot of lushness to it, but also has a lot of starkness and death in it as well. Yeah. Listening to you, Reese, tell that the story of the Garden of Eden a bit there and talk about it, it makes me realize that, you know, that was the story of mankind, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But it also is the story of every human because yeah. we, we come into the world innocent and not knowing that personally we're going to die. And and that, you know, I think grief is a very apt word for mm-hmm. how we come to terms with our mortality. And and so it, it's it's general, but it's also so, so personal because um, there's almost nothing more personal than one's own death. You know, because mm-hmm. you're the you're the only one who gets to experience that. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, there's no sharing that one. You know, no. um, and obviously your de- people's deaths affect other people, but you know, my dad always says, you know, everybody gets a chance to be the one who died. You know, um, and he's you know he's in his seventies, so he's at that point you know where he does have siblings who are dying and friends who are dying. You know, and mm-hmm. it's 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 so intensely personal how it's you and the locked box of your brain of how you come to terms with it, because in the end, it is you who will deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I almost, you know, I work vast majority with the single figure. And I think (laughs) I do that because it is, you know, a very personal and, you know, isolated, I don't want to say lonely, but in a way, a lonely journey. I think kind of, I think lonely, it can be. I don't think that's inaccurate. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And even when I work in multiple figures, I'm often thinking of them as, as like two sides of the same coin, like as the same figure, just being portrayed differently. Um, Even if that is, you know, in, in different genders or, you know, those interactions to me are much more of kind of a personal interaction with yourself than they Mm. are necessarily about, you know, these two different relationships. I see them as a relationship with oneself often. Yeah. Because you do work in this exceptionally personal space, Mm -hmm. individual, you know, personal for each, personal for each person, um, but also publicly, do you get people ever kind of just data dumping on you or like, like I did, like suddenly tell you like two chronic illnesses, like back to back, you know, <laughs> like, cause it, you know, you, you're, you're really getting right into a lot of big feelings and probably mm-hmm. a lot of people. Yeah. I think those are some of the, my favorite interactions I have in conversation about my work is, you know, people being able to feel a connection to my subject matter and feel potentially like represented or like something that they've experienced is being represented in a way they haven't seen before Mm. and allows them, you know, to find some comfort or solace in that or like a point of connection or to be able to share that, you know, to be able to share their own personal kind of health journey and how the work has made them think about it or allowed them a different kind of perspective or connection to that or affirmation with it that they appreciated, you know, being able to see kind of a struggle with health or this collision of well and unwell within a a space and it related to their own personal experience as well. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most incredible things about art is its ability to open up space for those conversations mm-hmm. in the way that if you just put a sign on the wall that says you're going to die, like I don't think <laughs> I don't think people would talk to you as openly, like you know. Yeah, and I feel like that's such an easy way to to make people kind of shut down. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the focuses of my work has been allowing people to get close to these ideas and not want to pull away from them or pull back from them. So giving them a kind of a space and a time to reflect on it in like kind of a quiet, very intimate, very personal way for them to, 
you know, connect more to their bodies, connect more to their own personal experiences. And if they don't have experience with illness, to potentially, you know, understand that they will sometime and be able to be okay with that and identify that as a part of themselves. Mm, Yeah. Having been someone who's thought a lot about this and dedicated a lot of your practice and your time to it, how do you kind of take comfort around the fact of death? How do you, how, if you do at all, you know, I mean, it's, it's something that I'm sure varies because I know it varies for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you get, when you get the, the death scaries, Mm -hmm. like, what do you think about? Like, how do you find a space for that? Yeah, I think that thinking a lot of about death has given me comfort in its inevitability. Mm. Uh, That doesn't mean that I'm also not terrified of it, especially, Mm -hmm. you know, terrified of losing people who are close to me. I think it's maybe made me more comfortable with the idea of my own inevitable death, yeah. but maybe not so much the people I care about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's something it hasn't given me comfort for that I'm still absolutely terrified of, as I'm sure we all are, of like losing the people who are nearest and dearest to us. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's been a comfort in ways. Um, and in other ways, uh, I think it's just a subject matter I keep returning to. I I do do other, like I have made a lot of other projects. I, I do a lot of collaborations and my collaborations have very little often to do with this subject matter. But in my own personal work or the work that's that I just make, you know, on my own, it's a subject matter that I find myself drawn to over and over again that I kind mm. of can't look away from. Yeah, yeah, because I... I... I know that even in your in your small scale work, because I am the delighted owner of three teeth that you made, you know, it's still it's still there. You know, it seems like it mm-hmm. touches, you know, it's it's it there are these these beautiful little renderings of, of, of teeth with um little plants growing out of them, but that still is in that death, rebirth, decay field. So I think that yeah, it's got to be, um, you know, it, it is it is an it is an unsolvable Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and so I think because there's no there's no way I can look at it or twist it around that makes it not so. So what do I do with the space in between is is a really fascinating question. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I have an answer for you. Yeah. On that. I think that's what I'm drawn to in it yeah. is the inanswerability of it. Like it is like inescapable. I mm-hmm. love that it's in. Inis- I don't love that it's. Inescapable. <laughs> That's not like, the right word, girl. <laughs> uh, but I, I guess I'm drawn to its inescapability. Yes. Love might not be the right word, but I'm very drawn to it. It's something, yeah. yeah, yeah, that I'm intrigued by. That I keep coming back to is how inescapable it is. You know that we are our bodies and our bodies will fail and that's inevitable and inescapable. And yeah, that's, there's, there's a, it's, it's complicated, right? There's no real looking away from that for me, at least. It's something I keep returning to over and over in the work in sometimes small ways and sometimes like much more direct ways. Yeah. Do you think that you're looking for comfort or understanding or is it just the fascination or maybe all of the above that draws you back? I think it's all of the above. Mm. You know, I, I do think that I get a level of comfort from it. Um, I think I'm drawn to it because it is something that is not discussed a lot within our world. And so I love having a space where I can think about it and discuss it within my work. Um, and I think I'm, you know, I am pulled into the inescapability of it as well like that mm-hmm. that's something that draws me t- to the work as well yeah yeah it, it is uh it's I don't think I have actually don't think I have words for this yeah because <laughs> it, you've just said it so well of that the inescapability which makes it so terrifying and compelling and fascinating mm-hmm. all at once and it it reminds me of a interview I heard of a woman who was working on some project um where she was watching a Mr. Rogers episode and there's in the Mr. Rogers episode, there's a neighborhood dog that died and she was watching these with her three-year-old and her three-year-old looked up at her and said, dogs don't die. (laughs) (laughs) And I just like, I just feel like there's a part of me that's still that Mm three-year-old, 
you know, that just is like, that doesn't sound right. That, that'd be kind of too shitty. I'm sure someone got that wrong, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, that also has to be in dialogue with the realist and, you know, the adult Miranda. And it, it's a very deep vein to mine. And I think, yeah, you're doing it in really interesting and really beautiful ways. So I'm really oh. glad we got to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I'm completely inspired to go read a Carolyn Korsmeyer book after just having you speak of her, because I, I love this topic. Um, do you have a recommendation? Oh, I have so many book recommendations. Okay, so Carolyn Korsmeyer's Savoring Disgust is an amazing book that kind of talks about, you know, disgust within artwork, and it's mixed with beauty, and that has been a really important book to me. Uh, a couple of Todd May's books, A Fragile Life, Accepting Our Vulnerability. Uh, both of those books have been really, you know, his books on death and how we think about death and understand death have been really important for me. And I think like really good places to start if people want to reflect on death more and how death affects our lives and our understandings of who we are. Mm, great. Oh, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, this isn't sort of directly related, but I'm in the middle of John Kelly's The Great Mortality right now, which is all about the plague. Okay, Uh, yeah. Fascinating, you know, really, really fascinating. And this, uh, you know, to really answer this question of of what happens to society when suddenly just everyone starts getting sick and dying very, very quickly. And, you know, right now in this history, it's amazingly well-researched, but he's going through um, Italy and the plague's course in Italy, and it's how Florence got really strict and they kicked out all the sex workers and then Orvieto pretended it wasn't happening and then Rome did this, you know, and just the different ways the different cities culturally responded because they knew it was coming, Yeah, um, you know, to this this onslaught. And anyway, really interesting as well. doesn't sort of directly deal with these philosophical questions, but is definitely fuel for my philosophical fire for it. And the copy of the book I have has a great Hans Boldengrein uh, Mormento Mori on the cover of a beautiful woman, uh, you know, being assaulted by a skeleton, which is just classic, classic. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. And definitely like the work that I look at and think about like the most, you know, in terms of kind of the inspiration or kind of grounding for my own practice is looking back at all of those amazing Momenta More and like Vanitas paintings mm. of the past. Because I it is something that has like been like a rich like topic, subject matter within art for so long. Yeah. Um there's so many great, you know, art genres and artists who like looked at death in various ways. And and so I love looking back and thinking about how other people have depicted that and thought about it within work of art. Yeah. And it still holds so much fruit because we still haven't solved it. We're still all going to die. This is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's inevitable, right? I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's not a ton of universal truths, but that's one for Mm -hmm. us as humans, you know, like we are mortal um, and we have not solved that. I I don't think we ever will solve that personally. Uh, I can, I really hope we don't honestly like, Oh, I just, I had a panic attack once thinking about the inevitability of suddenly people just stop dying, like how terrible the world would get. Yeah. So, yeah, no, no, no. We're meant to, from ashes into ashes, like that's how it's meant to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Tanya, it's been so fun to talk to you about this very dark thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But also just, you know, beautiful. And I always really, really appreciate talking to other humans who will go there and do that work because I think it is part and parcel of of leading a true life um, is the that acceptance and so you know again thank you for the work that you do and and thank you for speaking with me well thank you so much for having me this was really a meaningful conversation I really appreciate it yeah can you please let people know where they can find you and and follow your work and and hear about upcoming exhibitions and projects and all that oh yeah um okay so i'm on instagram and facebook it's just my name each time i think for my instagram it's my name underscore uh, my first name underscore last name which is tanya torgerson 
Uh, I also have a website, uh, which is also just my name. Um, my name's a little tricky to spell, so look it up on the, you know, podcast description to yes. see how to spell yes. it. Um, but yeah, and I will, um, for those of you printmakers that will be at conferences, um, I'm going to have a big exhibition with Krista Carlton. We're making a brand new collaborative body of work, and that's going to premiere at MAPC in the fall. So I'm really excited about that. Very exciting. Beautiful. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again, Tanya. And I will definitely be in touch and hopefully see you at one of those conferences. Um, yeah. All mortal perils of the pandemic permitting. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed that the yeah. plague does not stymie us again. <laughs> It's a beautiful note to close on. <laughs> so thank you again. Um, it was a lovely, lovely conversation. Thanks. Okay, bye. Bye. If you'd like today's episode, we do have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and you'll get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with the guests. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Joseph Lupo, a professor of art at West Virginia University. We'll talk about his practice repurposing copyright-free French comics from the early 1900s, choosing not to make art that everyone's going to like, additioning work as it relates to commercial art spaces, and the wonderful printmaking program at West Virginia University. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.